I'm Edith Chakraborty, and coming up on this week's business podcast, as the airline industry vows to halve its carbon emissions by 2050, we analyse the knock-on costs to customers. Plus, we investigate allegations that Lloyd's, the bank bailed out by £17 billion of public money, has encouraged its customers to avoid paying tax in the UK. And, after sportswear giants Adidas and Puma make nice on a fraternal feud dating back to the 1940s, we discuss the pros and cons of keeping business in the family. Remember, the family that plays together stays together. This is The Business from The Guardian. And we are indeed family on this week's panel. Deborah Hargreaves is The Guardian's business editor. Welcome back, Debbie. Hello. Playing Robin to Deborah's Batman, it says here, is our transport correspondent, Dan Milmo. That's very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> Robin, what does that mean? <laughs> I d- I d- use your imagination, listeners. <laughs> Can you do the... If you can see the gesture I'm making. um, (laughs) And making his debut alongside that dynamic duo is the Observer's tax expert, Nick Mathiason. That makes me the joker, I guess. (laughs) All right, team. We're going to start this week with the big changes announced by the airline industry. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. The BA chief exec, Willie Walsh, is unveiling a landmark agreement between airlines, airports and aircraft companies to halve carbon emissions by 2050. The deal, which we presented at a UN summit in New York this week, marks a huge strategic shift from the aviation industry, who have long been criticised for sticking their heads in the sand when it comes to climate change. Well, Dan, this was your front page story, so many congratulations. Is this a case of companies just cynically trying to get ahead on the publicity agenda, or is this a case of turkeys voting for Christmas? I can't make up my mind. Well, certainly airlines are concerned that they are turkeys. Um, I went to the Global Airline Conference um, earlier this year in, in Kuala Lumpur and uh, Willie Walsh in particular was saying if we don't get our act together on climate change we, we could well be ambushed at Copenhagen. The crux of this announcement is that airlines are saying okay we acknowledge that we have a hefty responsibility to bearing the cost of our contribution towards climate change and this is just this is one proposal for it. I think there's going to be probably some pushback uh, in the other direction from say world leaders at Copenhagen and indeed at New York, so we have to see what comes from there. So it's a first salvo in a kind of a bargaining process, is that how you see it? Yeah, you look at something like this and it's clearly a, a political move to try and seize the initiative. They're trying to seize the initiative and, and thus far, you know, in these opening hours of a debate that's going to get very hot by the time we get to Copenhagen, they have um, they have certainly taken control. And what significance should we attach that it's BA that seems to be spearheading this announcement? Well, um, Willie Walsh is leading a delegation of airlines uh, who are part of the International Air Transport Association, which represents represents 93% of all scheduled international air traffic. So he's kind of the spokesperson of this group. But um, Willie Walsh is um, seen as one of the most involved airline executives in the environmental debate um, and indeed is is seen as quite an eloquent and uh, savvy spokesperson for that group. So that's why he's there. And also, I mean, British Airways is a big big brand, Mm -hmm. so it doesn't do them any um, disservice to have someone like Willie Walsh standing up in in the UN and uh, making these proposals formally. It's quite a big move for Willie Walsh to be making and for the airlines he industry to make. Willie Walsh, uh, if you ever say something like he's a, he's a bit of a straight talker, Willie Walsh, he'd probably be quite upset with that, uh, uh, with, uh, with that take on it. But, I mean, it certainly um, should distract you from BA and indeed the airline industry's wider financial problems. They're forecast to lose $11 billion this year. So the reaction to this announcement, and it, it's entirely understandable, when people say, oh, but the airlines are going to buy off um, their carbon emissions with offsetting and carbon credits. Well, right now they can't afford it. 
they can't afford a they can't afford a single ton of carbon being bought on the market at the moment. They're losing eleven billion dollars this year. The oil price is below a hundred dollars a barrel. When the global market recovers, oil is going to go right back up, possibly to two thousand and eight levels. And let's not forget that was over one hundred and forty dollars a barrel. Back breaking for airlines. Yeah, yeah, that is back breaking. It did kill airlines, and it came very close to taking down a few big players. So we know what the Americans and the Chinese are on this. The Americans have uh, signed up to it. The Chinese, um, it seems to be the background to this is that China and India in particular have been a bit of a problem on um, negotiations and whether or not airlines were able to come together as, a, as an entire sector and make this proposal. Um, they, they appear to be on side because that's what airlines have done today. They've come together as a group. Right, so if companies can't afford to pay for it, and we're in the middle of a recession. Are they expecting consumers to pay for all this carbon, these noble carbon goals? Yeah, they'll try as much as possible um, without um, being um, too techy about it. There is a point where fares go up to the extent that people just won't travel. Uh, one of the strange phenomena of this recession is that um, airlines have, are now beginning to fill their planes quite to quite high levels because, unfortunately, they're having to just dump fare prices to, to get people on board. So... Um, it goes. It follows that if they put fares back up, they're going to sell fewer seats. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult for them to pass on the cost. Consumers are very sensitive to uh, rising airfares. All right, but then if we want to try and halve airline carbon emissions by 2050, how is that going to affect flight prices? Is it going to be case that if I fly to Thailand or wherever that I'm going to find my ticket price goes up by double? By what? What kind of vindication are they giving you on prices? Well, um, as any... Um, uh, academic uh, economist will tell you it all depends on the price of carbon uh, and there's certainly not a sign of a price of carbon in, in the announcements that I've seen so far today so it's contingent on that um, suffice to say if they don't achieve these reductions in absolute terms by getting uh, greener aircraft and improving things like air traffic control then they are going to have to buy those reductions. And that is entirely relative to the price of carbon. But if they're having to buy a 50% reduction, then the cost of the flight to Thailand might be so prohibitive that people won't fly, and therefore the business model for long-haul airlines will just be coalesced around business travellers, you know, the really rich and those who must travel and no one else. Dan, let's finish this round by saying, is this greenwash or is this serious? What do you think? If it's greenwash, then the airlines are going to find themselves in a very serious situation uh, within months. Copenhagen will find them out, I'm sure. Debbie, what do you think? I think it's quite a bold move and a, and, and a first step, but I mean, obviously doesn't go far enough and obviously a starting point. But um, but still, it's pretty brave of them to start doing it. Maybe Nick? we shouldn't be so cynical. Nick? Um, I'm interested to see what effect um, the ending of domestic flights would have on overall carbon reductions. And I think that's the kind of the drift of policy. If we do get the high-speed network up and running, then that will see off um, uh, domestic flights. And then it'd be quite interesting to see what effect that has. OK, you can read more about this at guardian.co.uk slash environment. But for now, we're going to move from the glamorous world of air travel and head to the much murkier world of offshore banking. The dividend is paid from Hong Kong. So basically, we, we, we would manage the fund here. The, the income made from the fund would go to Hong Kong and then Hong Kong would send it out to all the clients. 
and that's how we get round it. So uh, you, it goes to Hong Kong and comes back. Yeah, again. yeah. Is this just a paper transaction? Oh, it's only oh, it's only a paper transaction. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, very much so. Once we've paid you that income, there's no interest to us whether you tell the taxman or not. It's not our business. Yeah. Simple as. That clips from an undercover investigation by the BBC's Panorama programme. They filmed a bank at the Jersey branch of Lloyd's TSB Offshore telling a reporter posing as a customer how to get around the European tax laws by channelling money through Hong Kong. The banker also admitted that he and his colleagues spent time brainstorming tax avoidance schemes. Well, Lloyd's have denied any allegations of tax evasion, but Nick, this is another set of bad headlines for a bank that was bailed out by public money. Yeah, it really is a kind of uh, hand-over-the-eye moment. I mean, it was a vivid evidence of outrageous um, tax avoidance at best. Um, And I I think the the poor cog in the wheel, the guy, has been suspended pending investigations. It is a a very revealing moment. Do you think it's a tip-of-the-iceberg thing or one-off? Oh, no, I think it's definitely um, a tip of the iceberg. I mean, this happens all the time. Why do you think we've got representatives of virtually every single bank and accountancy practice in the Channel Islands and in, in the Caymans and uh, BVI, the British Virgin Islands and beyond? I mean, this, is, this happens on a regular basis as we speak, Aditya. OK, well, this week, the leaders of the G20 most important economies are meeting in Pittsburgh. At the last G20 meeting in April in London, Gordon Brown led the kind of fight on tax havens. How far do you think we've made any progress on that? I think we're making very slow progress. I don't expect much progress on the tax haven issue at Pittsburgh. What I'm hearing is that in St Andrews um, in, um, in November, there may be more um, uh, kind of sense of uh, where we're heading and, and more clamp down. But what I do detect is this gradual pressure building up on tax havens. And um, there will, I mean, I, th- I know the OECD are doing a lot of work to go beyond what's already happened. And France, Germany are, are building up a big head of steam to clamp down on this. And, um, and Gordon's trying to catch up, I guess. Dan, one thing that strikes me when I listen to things like the Panorama programme is that as long as you have a tax code, you'll always have loopholes in tax law and you always have tax accountants that get paid huge amounts of money to go and truffle them out so won't it always be thus well it's interesting you made that point about um tax consultants in particular because when i used to cover the the uh, media industry i was always fascinated by how tax consultants managed to find a cunning ruse in the film industry for instance and david beckham ended up uh, inadvertently backing a series of rubbish uh, brick uh, brick coms that never came out so uh, that said, I, I don't really think that should be an argument against you know the, the overwhelming moral responsibility on global governments to crack down on this, and this being one of the latest examples of where they need to act. The, the thing that really surprises me about some of these tax avoidance schemes is that the companies and the individuals who engage in them feel no moral responsibility towards the country in which they're living. I mean, often these people are business leaders or, or people or critics of government policy, and they will say, you know, why aren't the schools better or why is the NHS not working? They don't seem to match that up with the, with the tax avoidance that they've been indulging in for, for years. And uh, I can't understand why companies don't see it as a corporate governance issue. It's it's just yeah, but Deborah, that's just hand wringing, isn't it? As long as you've got places like Jersey and the Cayman Islands, which offer their services like this, and you've got bankers and consultants who make huge amounts of money out of constructing these paper schemes, then it's always going to happen. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm just will. thinking it about the, the the news last week about Barclays and this deal it had to funnel mm. all its assets into an offshore vehicle called Proteum that was going to be run by some pseudo hedge fund managers. Now. 
there in may the not Cayman be there, Islands. there may yeah. not exactly in the Caymans there may not be any tax or or regulate that may be completely kosher but as long as you have this kind of very clever people and a clever industry which is devoted to finding clever ways of using offshore locations to do this sort of thing it's always going to happen isn't yeah it? it is it is it shows you that regulators are always one step behind and i mean one of the suspicions in the barclays deal is that these 45 people who are going off to run this supposed hedge fund based in the caymans were were moving out of the influence of the bank and therefore out of the regulatory structure so could be paid huge bonuses without every anyone ever knowing nick Jersey, Guernsey, the Cayman Islands, they're all British dependencies, if that's politically correct to call them that. Yeah. Should we just invade them? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I mean, we, have, we do have responsibilities. Um, uh, in the uh, Isle of Man, uh, Guernsey and Jersey are crown dependencies and the Caymans is an overseas territory. We, we, we run them via the Foreign Office. And um, I mean, the, I think the tragedy is that we have encouraged these jurisdictions to um, pursue aggressively financial services as a way of, of surviving and prospering uh, at the expense of you know, huge amounts of the world, uh, uh, including our country so can we invade them i mean we can definitely uh, i think we're, we're all having said all that we're, we're just one kind of part of a of a big financial flow i mean hong kong and singapore and dubai are the new kind of locations where uh, or the new secrecy jurisdictions look at delaware which is you know joe biden's uh, kind of uh, place of represent, uh, representation all these places are part of the of the flow of finance and you know so it really has to come down to global laws and we saw at the g20 that in fact it was China, who were objecting to tax haven protocols, and it took because inter- of Hong Kong, because of Hong Kong, and it took the intervention of Obama uh, to bring Sarkozy and, and the Chinese leadership together, and, and so we could see that that's where it's at, that that's where it's got to come from. Three things that we could do to stop this kind of tax avoidance. Three things. Uh, well, I think we need those three guys. Uh, well, Obama and the Chinese, plus uh, the o- oh, in fact the OECD, to to have some kind of global uh, tax pr- uh, protocol. We but that's probably a bit pie in the sky because um, having said that we could have country by country reporting which is a key um, a key measure which make, means that every company has to reveal exactly what their revenue is and how much tax they pay in each jurisdiction that's that's a key thing and automatic information exchange um, at the moment it's kind of um, uh, bilateral so if I, if I go to Jersey and I say give me your tax information they will do it for me but yeah, if you I'm Zambian and I go to Jersey they won't tell me anything Indeed, and the, and the kind of barrier to entry to access that information is exceedingly high. The amount of times the Americans have got information out of Jersey, for instance, is just five times in seven years. Can you imagine how many taxpayers are based in Jersey? Well, that's two points, Nick, but you've got an awful lot off your chest. Uh, and we'll have to see what happens with this one. Keep up to date at guardian.co.uk slash business. Now, there's an old adage in show business about never working with animals or children, although it's a rule that we hope to break on the business podcast over coming weeks. There's some animals coming on And children. Oh, great. Probably together. It's going to be like Noah's Ark in here. But when it comes to business, is it wise to steer clear of fat friends and family? Well, one of the longest running business related family feuds was put on hold this week for one day at least, when workers at the Adidas and Puma HQs in Germany agreed to end their hostilities. The rival firms were set up by brothers Addy and Rudolf Dassler in 1948, after the pair had a falling out. Grant Gordon is a director general of the Institute for Family Businesses and the co-author of Family Wars, classic conflicts in family business and how to deal with them. Family businesses 
clearly have some key advantages in terms of entrepreneurship. One of the, the main advantages highlighted is the sort of short decision-making uh, time span, being able to move fast to, to, to take decisions, to make changes in your business, to innovate and so on. The other key aspect would be looking at the whole notion of stewardship. And, and here it's more about the, the focus on the longer term. It's, it's having a clear vision for the business. It's looking towards the month, towards the year, and thinking about the business in terms of longer periods, building that business in a sort of consistent and sometimes conservative manner as well, thinking about the risks in the business and trying to minimise those. Okay, so those are the pros, yes. but can a family business ever have the same kind of discipline as a shareholder company does? Well, with the family ownership of the business, clearly comes some risks. Into a family business, you are bringing a family of people who are related, and into that, um, into that system, if you like, you're bringing emotion. Bringing that emotion into the business is something that needs to be managed. The sort of risks um, that come with the uh, come with the territory are risks around issues like um, intergenerational struggles, not pro- not properly planning for succession. Also, disputes around expectations, expectations in terms of rewards, expectations in terms of dividends, in terms of um, financial returns from the business, and also the issue of entitlement to jobs. The whole question of nepotism is a real issue that family firms have to confront. Um, should jobs be an entitlement for family members or should be, they be something that uh, 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 it's something earned based on merit? These are some of the issues that, that come up and clearly families as owners have to think about managing these issues if they're going to be successful, not just successful in business, but if they're going to be able to manage the business without um, creating problems of, of this type of nature. Are there particular parts of the world where you get a greater concentration of family businesses? Well, statistically, um, the, the family business sector is an enormous part of the world economy. Um, by that, I mean, um, if we take an example very close to home, we start in the UK. In the UK, family businesses account for about two-thirds of all enterprises. They account for for nearly 10 million people in terms of the private sector, people working in the family business sector, and and 30% of the GDP. Now, that's the UK. Clearly, if you go to other parts of the world, perhaps if you go more to the Latin part of the world, you'll find that that's an even higher proportion in terms of family, the family business sector and its penetration. But wherever you look, it doesn't matter whether it's the developed world or whether it's the developing economies, Family business is a huge part of the global economy in terms of uh, a type of enterprise, a type of way of of doing business. And can you spot any differences between the way that the recession, the global recession, has affected shareholder companies and the way it's affected family businesses? Well, the recession has clearly been a, uh, has had negative impacts right across the board. And doesn't matter what your ownership structure is, whether it's private equity, whether it's uh, quoted, or whether private family ownership, for example. In all these cases, one has been impacted. But one of the things that might set family businesses out and, and has, there's quite a lot of evidence that it has, there's been a, a, a difference in terms of uh, the, the shorter term impact is with respect to managing the whole question of financing the business. Family businesses tend to, by nature, be more conservative in the way they look at finance. They tend to carry 
uh, lower debt on their balance sheet. Some of them, you know, try even not to have any debt at all. Um, now, that has meant, in good times, probably sacrificing a bit in terms of growth, maybe not running after investment opportunities quite as fast. However, it's meant coming into the recession that there's been a bit of a cushion for many firms in the family business sector. And, you know, family firms, you know, this is not for many family firms, long-term family firms that have been around for, for generations. This is not the first recession they've seen. So there's a sort of, um, there's, a, there's a feeling that, you know, one has to save for a rainy day. And, you know, with that sort of attitude, perhaps there is, there's a bit more leeway, but times have been very challenging, notwithstanding that. Grant Gordon there giving a rather romantic view of what family business can achieve. But, but Deborah, I understand you've got first-hand experience of all of this. Yeah, my husband has, um, in his family, has two family businesses, one on his dad's side and one on his mum's side. And I must say, they are both a complete and utter nightmare. I have this joke with my husband that family, that one family business is press button A and the other one is press button B. Cue a rant of at least an hour each. Because the, the thing he was saying, that guy, it's true, you should just never mix family politics and business because you have one extra layer of difficulty. You end up bringing with so much baggage. And the thing is, they're all talking about feuds that go back, you know, two generations. How many people from our side of the family are on the board? How many people from your side of the family? Your side has always had more representation than our side. Your side's taking out more money. It's a complete nightmare. Mick, speak up for the primacy of blood over water Well, here. I think some of the most successful businesses in this country and beyond are family businesses. You just look at Sainsbury's, Tesco's. Yeah, but they're not family um, businesses they anymore. They were. How did they get massive? They were massive because they they thought about trade, business and growing. And it was passed on from generation to generation and they thrived. So those are two. I mean, you look at uh, Gerald Bronson in London, his Heron International. He, he had his wife working for him when he was inside. The brothers Lehman. Uh, the brothers Lehman. Oh, yeah, they've been very successful. <laughs> well, no, once the family are, are ejected and it's all about shareholders, and maybe uh, they, you, there's an yeah, argument so to say Tesco that they go down. Yeah, so point doesn't make it, doesn't... <laughs> no, it doesn't. does. Once, the, once you inject shareholders into it, then suddenly maybe things get diffuse and that's when the real problems come into being. Dan? Um, can I propose a round of applause for the Murdoch family? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, that's probably more. Sorry. Uh, no, I, no, they know how to uh, make money. Proposal withdrawn. Um, the, I mean, Rupert Murdoch is an extremely tough, a sort of stentorian figure, and he's uh, led his children through the News Corporation. Yeah, well, maybe group what and you need is a dictator. That's it. Maybe democracy just doesn't work in the family business because he's effectively a dictator, isn't he? Well, no comment on behalf of uh, Guardian <laughs> newspapers. I mean,. <laughs> I mean, he's certainly, um, I've, I've covered uh, shareholder battles between the Murdochs and the city where it's quite clear that Murdoch has driven a horse and four through corporate governance norms. But uh, in terms of its performance, B-Sky-B has been a very successful business because of the heavy hand of Murdoch on the tiller and his son as well. Um, who's no, now- Tony Ball might have a part to play in the success of Sky. Yeah, sure he did. He did. But James Murdoch yeah, did. Who, who chose him? I think nonetheless, the uh, the unique attributes of Rupert Murdoch and the way that he's been able to install his children in senior positions in, in his empire, it's, it's just such a one-off. You can't say it's necessarily an argument in favour of family-run businesses. It's an argument in favour of Murdoch family-run businesses. That not, all, not all families have the drive and the cunning and probably the luck that Rupert Murdoch has had. And probably one of the most successful businesses in the world is the family, a mafia. They control the drugs trade and various illicit oh, yes, organisations. Oh, yes, well. uh, they seem to work quite well. <laughs> 
they have a few feuds between them though, don't they? But Not we, all they, of them are still alive. But they do make money. Would you like to be a non-exec on the Corleone family board though, <laughs> Nick? I haven't been asked yet. <laughs> yet. Once again, a cheery note in which you end. If you want to leave a comment on anything you've heard, head to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. We're back next week, but for now, thanks to my panel, Deborah Hargreaves, Dan Milmo and Nick Mathiasen, our producers, Ben Green, I'm Adit Chakraborty, and that was The Business. <laughs>